0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 167 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month. And the time for a pre-recorded talk has come once again. This time by the great Terence McKenna. And if you don't know who Terence McKenna is, I suggest you turn on your PC or your uh, MacBook or your your phone and you write google.com or dot whatever country you like to search from and you type in Terence McKenna. And stop wasting my goddamn time with such questions. And for me, Terence McKenna never gets old, in my opinion. What I particularly like with this one is that he refers to what happened in the Garden of Eden as the first ever drug bust. When God comes and discovers that Adam and Eve have been eating the forbidden fruit pretty funny. This talk was given in May of 1990, so it's a while back. And the most dated thing is the fact that Terence mentions how many people are living on Earth, and by now it's twice as many. But the rest of the talk is that, it, as it is always with Terence, very timeless. Let's listen.
1: Well, I'll just say a little bit about... Uh myself and how I relate to this. I don't really like to talk about it in those terms, but since this is the getting to know each other thing, it's very important to the... to what I understand that um, everybody else understand that there's nothing special about it or me In other words, for for what I'm trying to do to make sense, this access to this transcendental realm has to be democratically available. It can't depend on your spiritual accomplishment or your mastery of a technique or something like that. It isn't like that. It's something that is as uh, much a part of us as ordinary people, as our sexuality is. And sexuality is not something that is dispensed by gurus. It's just something you figure out and do, you know. And this is much more along those lines. My How I explain to myself what I'm doing in this position is that I was just simply incredibly lucky Incredibly fortunate to be at certain places at certain times when they were handing out the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it, it's a, and then I sort of I see you in the same way. Someone over here, Fred said he was looking for the the answer to the mystery of life. Well, the weird thing about taking that position is that you can fall into positions where you find it, where you find the answer. And I sort of feel like that's the situation that the deep plant psychedelic community is in. It's a sense of having found the answer, and now the task, Changes. It's a completely different kind of spiritual universe that you live in after you've found the answer because the task becomes facing the answer. Facing it. You now have it. It's no more about disciplining the passions and all the... No, no. It's now been handed over. And so what are you going to do with it? And this, this is... Uh, To my mind, in a way, uh, the, the problem and the challenge that we face globally as a species. You know, if the holy grail of the Western mind was the ability to release energy and form matter and to control nature, then this is now achieved. The goal... So now the whole context of the problem changes. And the problem becomes changing our own minds, controlling the hand that controls the energy. And this is an entirely different kind of problem. It is not to be solved with the analytical knife plunged again and again into the body of nature. That whole approach is... Uh, seem to be, uh, at best, passe, at worst, bankrupt. So instead, it's about trying to edge up close to nature and feeling, as individuals and as, as a society, very peculiar about this. You know, it's like going back to your rape victim and pleading for their forgiveness. And yet... As I've tried to make sense of these psychedelic experiences, first, in a general way, saying, you know, what are these molecules for? Or is that a proper question to ask? What are they doing for the plant? What are they doing for me? Uh, As I've tried to come to terms with what this might all be about, I've come more and more, back to the notion that uh, it all lies in the plans, that our peculiar restlessness, which in modern circumstances has evolved into a rapacious appetite for addictive substances of all sorts, our peculiar... Uh, inappropriateness in all contexts, so we are not quite simply complex mammals, we are certainly not angels, and we just seem to occupy a very uncomfortable place in the hierarchy of, of uh, creation. I think this has to do with the fact that we are uh, the the traumatized inheritors of a dysfunctional relationship, a relationship that grew dysfunctional uh, in the last 15 to 25,000 years. And what we call history is the fall out of a dynamic here-and-now, feeling-toned relationship with our environment and into... You know, this anticipation of the future, worry about the past, uh, basically ego. And I I recently spoke in New York, and New York is a very uh, nuts and bolts kind of town. And uh, people there took issue with the notion that all of our problems can be boiled down to a single problem if you trace the, the thread of every screw-up back into the maze, it all comes back to a single issue, which is excess of ego. We all have excess of ego. And our, our entire situation, legalistic, psychological, religious, everything is about this, that it, it doesn't work. It's maladaptive. And yet we have it. And uh, why do we have it if it's maladaptive? If it doesn't promote human values, then how in the hell did it get started and what is it that's maintaining and sustaining it? Well, this is what I want to talk about uh, over the course of the weekend. Uh when I pushed the analysis of what the psychedelic experience meant to the limits, I was surprised to discover that it left the domain of my personal relationship to the mystery. You know, what is it? What does it want for me? What is it trying to say? It, all that had to also make room for uh, another issue which is there's a political issue here. I think most people in this room, most people who have had the psychedelic experience will agree that the most profound, the most open-hearted, the most moving moments of their lives, some of them have been tied in with those experiences. But we seem unable or unwilling or afraid to extrapolate that conclusion to the notion that this is a general panacea for society, because we cannot conceive that our uh, that the the solution to a spiritual dilemma could lie in matter. In other words, we ourselves have been effect infected by the inside outside matter-spirit dichotomies of the of the dominator culture but the notion that man notice the gender thrust here the notion that man could somehow bootstrap himself to Godhead without reference to nature seems to me highly peculiar and simply nothing more than an expression of hubris Pride, a belief, you know, that we can do it our way and alone. So, all of this is, is very, uh, uh, the shelf life is short on all of these issues because the planet is in a state of terminal crisis does that have anything to do with the psychedelic experience? Or are these separate issues? How can they be separate issues if the psychedelic experience is a mirror of the state of the individual and, and collective psyche? And if the planet is uh, on a collision course with some kind of terminal crisis? It seems to me then, that what, you know, nature is struggling to right this disequilibrated planetary ecosystem. So, in a sense, there is nothing to be done except to watch and wait. But on the other hand, we are not apart from nature, We are, in some sense, a a portion of nature which is the most reactive and energetic because we are reactive and energetic in the domain of epigenetic codes. We can foment rapid change. Until recently, it it, it was a truism of thinking about society that all change had to be gradual. This myth has now been exploded. We know that, you know you just take them all out and hang them and then that's not gradual and then you've got a new world. And this has been done in several places with uh, excellent success recently. So change need not be gradual. And in fact, I think we're entering into a historical domain where very little change will be gradual. Gradual change was a luxury of the past. Well, how to come to terms with these processes, patterns forming and reforming in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our businesses, in the extended relationships we have with people. It's... what is needed, you see, is a kind of collective breakthrough in apperception. I was thinking in the hot tub today, the, the most politically potent thing you can do for somebody is to educate them, to give them the facts. The facts are now so horrifying and the means of delivering the facts so effective that there is no excuse for everyone not beginning to act in an informed manner. And I I think this is happening. Uh, For instance, a few months ago I was in Belize, which is an extremely poor country, a little chip of land in the armpit of the Yucatan that used to be British Honduras. I didn't know there were countries this funky in the Western Hemisphere. I thought you had to go, you know. Uh, They have the fortune, good or ill, of speaking English as a national language. So when the British left, they just simply pointed dishes to the sky and they get 270 channels of American television. It has completely educated the entire population of the country into an extremely sophisticated strategy for surviving in the real world of the present moment. They understand that their only resource is their nature, so they have made the entire country into a, a nature reserve. They understand that, they, that tourism is their only hope and that for tourism to work, they must halt the destruction of their environment. This informing people at distant points of the value systems operating at the centers where values are being created, allows people to position themselves for success. I mean, a lot is being lost. You cannot pretend that the situation we're in is unambiguously rosy. It isn't. It's extremely complicated. Marxism dissolves... What does this mean? It means that now uh, 21 language groups and 16 tribal uh, groups are open to exploitation, homogenization, leveling of cultural values. Everybody will be turned into a kind of white bread consuming citizen in a beige fascist world. And this is the alternative to Armageddon. We hail this as a great step forward. What is happening is that all restrictions are being done away with against the expression of completely rapacious drives for immediate self-gratification. Until 18 months ago, only half the world had permission to behave like assholes. Now this permission is being extended to everyone as quickly as possible as a right You know, your right to join in the looting of the planet. Well, certainly Stalinism is a bad thing, but is the only ideological counterpoise to that to be high-tech, mindless consumer uh, fascism? I don't think so. In fact, I know not, because there isn't enough metal in the planet to put a Volvo in every driveway of three and a half billion or four billion people. So the search for a serious revolution in values is on. It cannot... It it must come from the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm, in practical terms, means the imagination. the, the, The frontier of our species is the imagination. Now, we have to take that slogan and somehow turn it into a technology. How can we go to the place where ideas come from? How can we somehow separate our architectonic fantasies from the ongoing momentum of the planet? Both are valid, you see, but we have to recognize that what we are is almost an ontological transformation of life we are to life what life is to the inorganic realm and we need to separate ourselves from the planet the planet the entire planet should be a bio reserve how many of these oxygen-rich water-heavy worlds are there Now, of course, it's pie in the sky to talk about moving all heavy industry into space or to the asteroid belt or something like that. But on the other hand, when you extrapolate a visionless future, even as much as three or four decades into the future, you see the accumulation of problems on such a scale that then there will be no pulling out of the power dive. Because once a society passes a certain point in the process of dissolution, you just don't make a decision to change. I mean, it's too late. You don't have the engineering skills. You don't have the technical community. You don't have the resource extraction ability. It's all slipped through your fingers. Well, I think uh, psychedelics are catalysts to thought to imagination, to understanding. And we are like somebody who has been dead drunk while the house was burning down around us. And now we have awakened to the sound of falling timbers and the smell of smoke. And we have a certain limited amount of time to figure this situation out. We don't have 500 years or 100 years. Anybody who speaks in terms of solutions that require a hundred years or even 50 years to implement, doesn't understand the dynamics of the situation. History has some kind of will for its own transcendence. And I think we are now so close to the dropping of the mask and the realization of, of what the game was all along that... The, the, the sense of this nearby revelation informs all of our lives. I mean, drives our dreams, our thoughts, the choices we make, why we're here in this room uh, this evening. It's very big news, I think. Uh, the world is not at all as we suppose it to be. I find that very amazing. I mean, that's the bottom line for me. I always think of these things in reference to that scene in 2001 when the anthropoid apes are leaping up and down and screaming and pointing at the monolith. That's what we're doing here in this room. I mean, the subject of this weekend is unspeakable, you know. It can only be obliquely indicated. Whatever you say about it is not true, Uh, and yet it is somehow... The informing mystery of being and it is not remote. That's the big news. That uh, the previous human model, which is that we are all poor groveling sinners and that Gnosis will trickle down to us from the wonderful folks up on top of the steep building nearby where they're conducting mysterious business with liver readings and stargazing. That model is uh, uh, insufficient and insulting considering the situation we have been brought to by those very stargazing men wearing dresses. So I think what we have to do now is just take the machinery into our own hands. It's a matter of personal responsibility to find out what the world is really doing, what it is. What do you think's going on? What do you think... This is all about. Who do you think you are? What do you think English is? Uh, How do you really cognize notions like uh, the future, the past, where I've been, what I want? I mean, you know, in Moby Dick, Melville says, if you would strike, strike through the mask. Everything is a mask. And just behind that mask lurks, well, what? That's the question. I mean, it's the it's the thing which informs every individual existence, and that's fine, and people have always lived in the shadow of that mystery. But it is our weird privilege to live in an age where there is also to be a collective dropping of the mask, a moment of melting and recasting of what reality itself is to be. So, you know, discussing this, convincing ourselves of it, and then working out the minute details of how it all is inevitable and couldn't be any other way, is uh, how we will occupy ourselves this weekend. I'm really conflicted in, in always in these situations because I feel, for some reason, I suppose it's an ego trip, that I want to be correctly perceived, I as a person want to be correctly perceived, and I think of myself as a reasonable person, a person sensitive to concepts like evidence, causality, uh, so forth and so on, and yet what I have to say is like completely unreasonable, I mean, a, a messenger uh, bearing news of complete madness uh, approaching from all directions. So, and I got into that position by staying pretty close to the principle of uh, of skepticism. I'm not a believer. In fact, when the when when the aliens draped the mantle over my shoulders, they said, "It's because you don't believe in anything." You know, this is why you get uh, that's why you got this far because you didn't believe in anything, and uh, it's a good method. Normally, it's a method spawned out of futility. You'll say, "Well, fuck it, I don't believe in anything." but it's also very good for getting rid of a lot of crap because the real stuff can take the test of skepticism. The real stuff doesn't have to be bowed down before and, you know, it it works, it's on its own. The, The news is, and it's very hard news to get out because it's news about the structure of reality the news is coming back from you know, 50, 60, 100 years of anthropologists, ethnographers, geographers, botanists dealing with the most quote-unquote primitive people in the most remote parts of the world, the news is that reality is not at all as we imagined it to be and that our prowess in the technical sciences is simply a, a cultural artifact, an accomplishment of ours. Some people do great tattoos. We send spacecraft to the stars. But it doesn't mean we understand anymore. And in fact, the evidence is building that our style of society is the historical equivalent of a temper tantrum. You know, that it has no viability. It's completely self-limiting. It's destructive. And it hands nothing on to, to its receivers. So uh, I sort of talk to this group, and all the groups that I talk to, from two points of view. I'm trying to convince you of something, and yet reason dictates that I assume that you're already convinced, pretty much. So then it's also an effort to figure out what it is we're so convinced of, and then what is so great about it. Because I think uh, some kind of a... This is a real mystery. The only one I know... This is the thing that you hope exists and assume doesn't if you're a reasonable person because it's that you know, all the dreams of childhood, all the sense of magic and the, and the dissolvability and transcendability of boundaries is, uh, is returned, is affirmed In this experience. Well, yet here we are having this on the brink of a planetary meltdown of culture and ecosystem. So is this just some kind of uh, dancing on the brink? Is the kind of ultimate self indulgence? Does it feed back into the central moral problem of the age, which is, what is to be done? What are we to do? How can we be effective, whatever that means? Is there a discernible role for each of us to play in the metamorphosis and near death of the planet that we are now experiencing? Or are we simply to witness it? Well, I don't think there's any point in thinking about these kinds of questions unless you draw back to the big picture, to first premises. You uh, you know, a good example of what I mean is, suppose we save the rainforests and stabilize the population and so forth and so on, and then 50 years down the line, uh, the sun explodes. (coughs) It means we didn't get it. We were not reading correctly the message nature was trying to hand to us. And so we did the wrong thing and are going to be blown out of the water for such churlishness. So what's important is to figure out what is going on before you start pushing in the process. And uh, I don't think you can do it from within a culture In other words, if you're a person of decent intent and moderate intelligence and you read the great minds of your culture and study their thought, it's insufficient because everybody is bound within an illusion of language. The entire enterprise of culture is this illusion of language. Homer was as sick with it as Heidegger. So there's no going back or getting, you know, no classic recension. What we have to do is reach past to some kind of experience. It must be anchored in an experience. But there is this thing about being human, which we as a culture have ignored, repressed, don't want to talk about face or think about, which is, you can get loaded. And nobody knows quite what to make of this. We dance around it with the same kind of furious, ambiguous intensity that we also reserve for sex, which is also a, a boundary dissolving, momentary uh, loss of self into some kind of greater whole. And it also just drives us into a frenzy. I mean, we establish boundaries, we have hierarchies, we push it this way and that. It just just drives us up the wall. You know, whoever she was who designed this system had the good sense to connect this whole sexual impulse very tightly into the generative process, so that there's no way you can get sex out of the human experience. I mean people have tried in all times and places in many strange ways. 150 years ago they were putting pants on pianos because it was thought that young men should not see pianos unclothed because it might excite them to impure thoughts. This is real. In England, in our culture, not New Guinea or the moon, but in England, pants wore, uh, pianos wore pants. But uh, the, the psychedelic option is sort of like an appendix, you know, you can have it, but you don't need it, apparently. Apparently, that's the key thing. In other words, whether or not you have the psychedelic experience does not stand between you and the ability to pass on your genes into time. It does not stand between you and continued existence, like the reflex, the autonomic reflex of breathing. It's a kind of... of uh, potential loop in development which we can, as culturally coordinated creatures, choose to follow or choose not to follow. But this development is very recent. Until, pick a number, 10,000 years ago, the onset of puberty which was, you know, the, uh, a wave of hormonal release, basically, the onset of puberty was the signal to the social mechanisms of the people to begin the administration of psychedelic plants, to carry people into adulthood, to carry them into a feeling-toned relationship with the mythological material that they had learned as children, but that they now would be expected to exemplify as realized adults within the Lung or culture or whatever it is that they are. We, in our anxiety about all this, and I'll talk about why I'm sure it will come out, but for the present just to say, we have interfered with this, and we have enforced upon ourselves a kind of infantilism, now, this is a phenomenon that's well known. It's called neoteny. Neoteny is the preservation of adult characteristics into adulthood, into adulthood. Childhood. Childhood, Childhood. Childhood characteristics or infantile characteristics or fe- even fetal characteristics. So, for instance, all, all primate fetuses are hairless but only the human being retains this fetal characteristic throughout life. The very large head of the human infant, the the, uh, percentage relationship to body mass remains uh, very much in the fetal end of the statistics throughout life for human beings. We have large heads. The very prolonged... uh, period in which skills, cultural skills are acquired, up to 16 years. Well, this tendency toward biological uh, neoteny, uh, which was reinforced by uh, mutagenic influences in the diet, is carried over into culture as a cultural characteristic. And it's, have you noticed that every generation views the generation it spawns as more childish than itself. And we look back to our rugged grandparents who slogged across the plains, and I suppose they look back to people in chain mail who were only four (laughs) feet high, who, you know, could go without eating for six months or something. And it it just gets... We become more and more soft, more and more infantile. And the final phase of this was just the decision that we never needed to grow up at all. We never needed to find out about the nature of our relationship to being at all. And so the psychedelics were suppressed. And what you have in the pre-adolescent child is an extreme expression of ego. And this is, you know, the 11-year-old child, let's take as the example, is the supreme egoist. And in a sense, we got hung up at that place because we, uh, we didn't get hung up in it. We fell into it. We were in balance, but the suppression of psychedelics created the precondition that allowed the generation of ego. And th- these are it's very complicated. A lot of factors were at work, you see. Uh, the mushroom style the shamanic style of the nomadic hunter-gatherer is a style of goddess worship and uh, psychedelic shamanism and orgiastic religion. And the shamanism and the religion o- overlap each other considerably. The, the style that replaced that was a style of... Uh, Domination, hierarchy, with alpha males, with powerful males controlling females at the center of these hierarchies. And to my mind, the, the sh- concern that caused the shift was uh, the accumulation in the psyche of these hominids of enough ego that there became concern for the line of male paternity. In other words, men wanted to know who their children were. And that made the orgiastic style of religion in conflict, because that was all about... No, the children were the children of the group, and sex was a shared activity, even though there might be bonding. But once people got a man, once men got it into their heads that they wanted to know who their offspring were, then females had to be controlled very rigidly and there had to be control of sexual... And the whole thing just turned into a nightmare. My women, my property, my children, my food, my territory, so on and so forth. Well, you see, what had been going on before was a true incipient symbiosis. And this is, I think, the new idea that I want to communicate and that I'm absolutely, one, serious about and two, literal about, that the, our glory and our uniqueness and why we are as we are is because we are a plant-animal symbiotic species our ordinary state, our state of nature, the way in which we existed until 10,000 years ago, was in a very tightly bound symbiotic relationship with plants. They were uh, We domesticated them and we uh, spread them and, and we created environments for them through the use of burning. And in return for this, this mysterious connection opened up, where real information couched in humanly cognizable terms, information about where the reindeer went, who you should marry, what the weather is going to do, stuff like that, real information began to be traded back and forth. Now, biologists are familiar with the notion of pheromones message-bearing chemicals that regulate behavior within a species. But we're just getting ready to go to the next level and recognize the possibility of what have been called exopheromones, pheromones that regulate behavior between species. And it's very clear that, you know, in climaxed ecosystems of great age, such as the equatorial tropics of this planet, uh, exo interactions become the major mediating force in all the evolutionary exchanges going on. The old notion of competition and survival of the fittest is now seen to be bankrupt. The way nature works is it's the species that can make itself most necessary to other species the one that can cut energy deals with the most of its neighbors that is the successful one. So you maximize cooperation, you maximize dependency, you maximize integration. This is the successful evolutionary strategy. I mean, of course you can be a jaguar and crash around in the forest and eat things immediately smaller than you, but... Um, jaguars will be a memory in the fossil record of this planet when the plants will still exist. Given, you know, that man were not part of the picture, so uh, uh, the, the dynamic of uh, of life dictates that these uh, that these energy levels be held very close. How do you? Um how do you explain the ego and the identity and the I am and all that stuff? I mean, is that outside of the natural? Or, you know? Well, no, I think you know nothing is outside of the natural, but all of this can be explained uh, in terms of climatological flux on the African continent. Very briefly... Um, You know, the primates evolved in Africa. Out of the primates came the hominids, which were these gray seal, upright, uh, opposable thumb, binocular vision. And there were a number of these, and they existed for, you know, over the past six million years. But Africa and the planet, because of repeated glaciation, is subject to cycles of drying. And uh, every time the ice moved south, Primate populations were bottled up in Africa. And we know there have been four glaciations immediately. The last one, the ice melted 20,000 years ago. And out of Africa, that last time, came pastoralists, people who had domesticated cattle and had a style of following cattle around rather than being just strictly hunter gatherers. Well, I maintain what happened was... uh, uh, these arboreal tree canopy living apes came under pressure as the continent dried up to expand their diet because the forests were disappearing and being replaced by grassland well most animal species eat only one or two kinds of food this is a general rule in nature and it's in order to hold down exposure to mutagenic influence But when an animal population is in a situation of food scarcity, the logical thing to do is to begin to test food sources and to expand your repertoire of food. Well, that's what these primates coming out of the trees did. Number one, they began eating meat which gave them a real interest that they had never had before in these ungulate mammals that were evolving in the grasslands. And they began to test all kinds of other foods in the environment. Well, when you do that, you are exposing your population to mutation. And mutation rates soar. And it was during this period that uh, the human brain size doubled in like a, a million and a half years, <clears throat> someone said it was the, um, the most rapid evolutionary expansion of a major organ ever seen in the fossil record. Nothing like it ever happened. Why? What was making this happen? Well, uh, it looks like Probably huge numbers of mutations were taking place in this population because people were literally eating anything they could get their hands on. And in this environment of the grasslands, the mushrooms were growing on the dung of these ungulate animals. Well, now a weird thing about psilocybin is that in very low doses, doses so low that you don't feel anything, uh, your vision improves. They've done tests with this. And, you know, there is an improvement in visual acuity uh, on psilocybin at low doses. Well, you can imagine the evolutionary impact of something like this on a hunting-gathering population where visual acuity is all that stands between you and grim starvation. It means a population of animals, a population of these evolving hominids that accept the mushroom into their diet... Have just been given a tremendous leg up on nearby competing troops, the competing troops that don't have it. it's like chemical binoculars. So, immediately, then there is a reason, an evolutionary reason, for mushrooms to be eaten and for the spread, for mushrooms to be accepted into the diet as an item and so forth and so on. Well, so then you take slightly more mushrooms. And like all alkaloids, and CN, it's a CNS arousal, it means you feel alert, you feel interested, you want to boogie, and also uh, if you're if you're male, you can sustain an erection. So it, it, arousal means arousal. So then uh, this stuff is an enzyme promoting sexual activity at that level. Well, sexual activity—the you know—the number of copulations that occur within a population is directly related to the number of successful impregnations. So suddenly you have these horny primates, be a lot of more interest in sexual contact and partners and all that. This means that these psilocybin-using creatures that are now more successful at hunting and more interested in sex have all kinds of pressures on them that will force them to outbreed the dull, uninteresting folks who don't use mushrooms at this point. <laughs> well, So then uh, high, yet, yet higher doses it changes and it's no longer about sexual activity or clarity of vision it becomes about the psychedelic trip this tremendous which is as awesome to you and me as it was to these so-called primitive folks 20,000 years ago we don't know what to make of it they don't know they didn't know what to make of it they founded a religion about it we're trying to start the engine of the same religion all over again and uh the way in which this religious ecstasis manifests itself is in language activity, in cognition, but in glossolalia, in spontaneous outbursts of syntactically organized vocal activity. Well the great mystery of human emergence, of course, is language what is it, where did it come from, how did it ever get going on such a scale, so forth and so on. But it looks to me like what we're seeing in psilocybin is a kind of neurological enzyme, a catalyst in the environment that could take an evolving primate population and put it through a series of forced changes that produce ultimately a self-reflected, minded, a uh, creature practicing a shamanic mother-goddess religion in this nomadic context. And that was paradise, and that was the ideal for the archaic revival. In other words, that Eden actually existed, that we are made for better things than what we've got. You know, it says in Finnegan's Wake, here in Cain Moikane was the red-light district of Dublin. Here in Moikane, we flop on the seamy side, but up Niant prospector, you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. That's a promise for the future. Up Niant you sprout all your worth and woof your wings. But also, antes, we sprouted our worth and woofed our wings. And this whole nostalgia for a perfected shamanism in prehistory is reasonable, I think. I mean, I think we had something, an unimaginably precious gift. We had consciousness and dynamic order. Consciousness as we experience it now within the confines of history is most analogous to cancer. I mean, it's just, you know, replicating, spreading. But it once was a dynamic, ordered thing. People lived, they died, they made love, they had children, they herded their flocks, they had ecstatic flights into a dimensions which we cannot even conceive of, and they felt no need, you know, to break into the earth, to divert the rivers, to do all of this stuff. And, and um, you know... Even if we're not aesthetically attracted to that, we have to make a value judgment on it because it was not a runaway process. It did not push everything uh, toward crisis. Okay, well, then, so what happened? What the hell happened if that's how it was? Well, you know, nature is just an ongoing story. The very drying processes that created those grasslands, that created those pressures on diet, that created that mother goddess religion, that evolved those ungulate animals. That process continued, and the grasslands dried up, and the winds began to blow, and the water holes got further and further apart from each other, and the mushroom festivals went from every Saturday night to the first uh, Saturday of every month and then to four times a year and then to once a year and then to once every five years and then to never. And in the absence of the psychedelic experience, this ego thing gets going. I mean, it is literally like a calcareous growth in the bloodstream of the psyche. If you don't inoculate yourself against it, it will begin to take root and grow, and and the world, the the boundaries of the world begin to move inward, you know, and you no longer see things on a planetary scale or a millennial scale, or it's just about you know my women, my money, my land, my children, all of this stuff, and at that point, you get um, the appearance of. Of historical civilizations. You have kingship, kingship, you know, the age of Gilgamesh. I mean, my God, when you read the story of Gilgamesh, you just wonder what's going on. Uh, Gilgamesh spurned the goddess, and the goddess sent a bull, which to me is, you know, symbolic of the mystery of the mushroom, the ungulate, herding, horned animal, the crypto symbol for the goddess. The goddess sends a bull and he, he uh, rejects the bull. He rejects the goddess, he rejects the bull. Then he takes Enkidu, the shaman figure, and forces him to go with him into the wilderness. And what do they do in the wilderness? This oldest of all myths, this story of the first men, what do they do? They cut down the tree of life. That's what they do. They cut down the tree of life and then they, you know, it goes forward. The earliest strata of mythology that comes out of these Middle Eastern civilizations is full of this male-female, nature-artificial tension. The story of Genesis is a similar thing. I mean, what's happening in Genesis is history's first drug bust. Uh, a woman is involved with a plant, and the plant uh, opens their eyes, and they see that they are naked, which happens to be the case; they are naked. So, in other words, they they see, they grok their true existential condition. And Yahweh, wandering around, mumbling to himself in the garden, says this thing that these people have done, what if they eat of the fruit of the tree of life? Then they will be as we are. So it's very clear that there is concern to withhold knowledge that human beings are to be held in an inferior position. Otherwise, if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, of knowledge, they would be as we are. So there's this whole and in the story in Genesis, you'll recall Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, and an angel is set at the east of Eden with a burning sword. Well, what I take this to be about is the it's a story from a strata where already the shift to the dominator culture has taken place. But they're looking backward at the partnership society in on the grasslands of Africa and the and the angel with the burning sword is nothing more than the sun that they literally were cast out of eden eden disappeared around them it dried up and blew away and there was nowhere to go but the nile valley and palestine and these people who appear in the nile valley and palestine at about 9800 bc called natufian come out of nowhere with a very high culture and a tremendous ability to exploit plant resources. And I think they are the remnants of this partnership culture. And you see, our, our, the way in which all this ties into the present and tr- tends to be more than just a... Uh, you know, a kind of cultural reconstruction of prehistory, is we're trying to understand who we are, why we are the way we are. Well, the major thing that now that we have transcended ideology, and nobody gives a hoot whether you're a Marxist or any of that anymore because we've all seen through that, the, the new issue is human nature. And it evolves around this drug thing. You know, is it the true and purest expression of human nature that you should drink nothing but cold water and eat nothing but raw vegetables and any departure from this is an abomination. And then when you get to drugs, you know, this is really an abomination. How, what should be our relationship to substances and why are we the addictive creatures that we are? I mean, I know that... Elephants intoxicate on papayas and bumblebees get loaded on sugar, water, and this and that. But human beings addict to dozens of substances, to behaviors. I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, guy goes out in the morning to pick up his paper off his porch and it's not there. And he has a heart attack. You know, he has to sit down. My God you know, what am I going to... And, and he has to have instant relief from the, the traumatic crisis <laughs> of the non-presence of uh, the morning information fix and, and the phenomenon of falling in love, which doesn't really happen with other animals. I mean, other animals bond, but they don't go bananas in the way that w- we do on, on this issue. Uh, we're, we're chemically highly cued in a way that a lot of animals around us aren't. So then history, because of this, because of this addictive drive within us, that we have, because of this disrupted symbiotic relationship in prehistory, see, we're looking for the score, but we can't quite find it. Imperialism doesn't do it. Heroin doesn't do it. Sadomasochism doesn't do it. Nothing quite does it, but we keep trying stuff, cocaine, money, fascism, mercantilism, ideology, all of this stuff, we are very, very restless. And the path of our restless, frantic peregrinations across the intellectual landscape is what we call history. You know, It's our effort to try and get straight, get back to something which we feel we deserve and that we lost and that we don't know quite what it was well meanwhile in the rainforests in the arctic tundra these little brown people have been keeping the gnosis going never questioning never doubting millennia after millennia going into these hyperdimensional mind spaces and operating there while this has been going on, we have been elaborating positivism, scientific philosophy, building atom smashers, so forth and so on. We have created, then, out of our infantile cultural style, uh, what Eric Fromm would call a fecal culture of st- cultural style, because we just excrete stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, they have held this mystery... But they, to my mind, the mistake that has been made is that it's been thought that they understood it. That we now go to the shamans and they will explain to us what the inner skinny is on all this. That isn't it. There's no explaining this. Once you've been there, you know the futility of a notion like understanding the psychedelic experience. It's like understanding the ocean.
0: This talk was lifted from the Psychedelic Salon podcast. Go to psychedelicsalon.com to check it out. You are humbly invited to support this podcast and by doing so keeping it free from corporate influence. Do you want to listen to alchemists, magicians, shamans and psychonauts or do you want to listen to humans possessed by dark and demonic forces that intends to lure you into their web of consumerism? I am sure you choose the former, so please support the podcast. Join us at the round table of the divine mystery as an intergalactic spirit warrior and ally to the glorious art of alchemy. Go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist if you want to become a patron. And for only a couple of bucks a month, you will be able to access additional content, deleted episodes and other exclusive material as well, and be able to listen to episodes way before they are released. And if you don't want to do this, that's fine too. You are loved nonetheless. Thank you. Now it's time for the greatly underrated and unknown band Love Button. This song is taken from the album Stigma to Gobius and is called Never Coming Home. To hear more of Love Button's music, go to love-button.com or on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash band Enjoy the rest of your day or night. Freedom is in the mind. Throw away my avocado. cheese out of my banjo Call me the flector, play some soul Coming home. I'm never coming home. I'm never coming home. Grunt. And we got some down here. Again, Via Patro Estas, Via Patrino, Cadia Patrino Estas, Bueno Hondo, La Hondo Estas in La Domo, Asino Estas in La Domo. Asigno esta snoop hundo hundo. Minne, vinni, hämme. Minne, vinni hämme. Ne, vinni hämme.